0: talking books on new 106 to 108
1: Many of these systems and machines can actually perform tasks empathetically as well or or at least can appear to mimic it in some way just just to give you an example there are now systems and machines that can more accurately than a human being distinguished between a face that's expressing a smile of genuine joy and fake joy, fake pain and real pain. There's a wonderful story, actually, of, the, of Joseph Weizenbaum, who was one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, who has a bit of fun and developed a system called Eliza, which was a digital psychotherapist. He wanted to test it, so he called a secretary and said, "Look, would you mind sitting down with uh, with Eliza and tell me how it is?" And so. She sat down with Eliza and Eliza started asking questions. And quite quickly after, the secretary asked Joseph Weizenbaum, the only other human being in the room, to leave the room. Because in actual fact, she felt more comfortable with a machine than with a human being in in resolving, or in in talking about the particular problem that she had. I mean, this this really troubled Joseph Weizenbaum. In
2: 1932, English writer, novelist and philosopher, Aldous Huxley wrote technological progress has merely provided us with a more efficient means for going backwards hello how are you and you're very welcome to talking books i'm susan cahill it's lovely to have your company this evening well on tonight's show we're going to unpack the meaning of progress and the future of work with richard and daniel suskind and ask are the professions fit for purpose yes you've got it Will technology replace the work of doctors, lawyers, accountants and teachers and provide service recipients, you and me, with more affordable access to expertise and knowledge? This is a show about fear and uncertainty, leadership and innovation, technological myopia, security and human values. So what future should we want?
0: Hello, uh, my name's Richard Suskind. I live an interesting kind of life because I divide my time between writing and speaking about the future of the professions and at the same time I advise some of the world's largest legal and accounting firms over and above that I do a good deal of work with the government and the judiciary my main interest there is in introducing online courts.
1: Hello my name is Daniel Suskind. At the moment, I'm a lecturer in economics at Balliol College in Oxford and my research focuses on how technological change affects the labour market. Before that, though, I I worked in the British government. I worked in the strategy unit and then in the policy unit in 10 Downing Street uh, across a range of different policy areas and, and got insights into a range of different professions.
2: Well done, Richard and Daniel, on the book. It's a terrific book. It's very, very interesting. I might start with a big, wide-open question, but I'm using a quote, and it's one that you came up with in your book. It's from the Canadian sci-fi writer, William Gibson. The future has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Do you agree with that, Richard?
0: I really do agree with it. I think it's a great quotation. As you'll see in the book, one of the things we did was explored what progress has actually been made in the professions. We looked to thought leaders as well as leading practitioners across the world, but particularly in the United States and the UK, and were amazed by some of the advances in medicine, in law, in education, in architecture and other areas. So I think Gibson's bang on. We can people often say you can't look into the future. In a way you can. You can have a look at what's already been done and imagine a world where that kind of progress is not exceptional. You can imagine it when it's pervasive. We had all sorts of case studies that we wrote about. I think it's better for you, Dan, to discuss that.
1: So on the the idea that the the future has already arrived, last year on eBay, for example, 60 million disputes arose that were resolved online without traditional lawyers using what's called an e-mediation platform. You know, bear in mind that 60 million disputes, that's 40 times the number of civil claims that are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system. A very, very different way of resolving legal problems. In the U.S. in 2014, 48 million Americans used online tax preparation software, either commercial software or ones that had been provided by the government to file their tax returns. You know, the, the tax system on average is updated once a day in the US, you know, this is a fundamentally different way of dealing with that, that challenge. And so we see across the professions, these new technologies It can sound science fictional, but it's already arrived and it's already happening.
2: I'm just wondering, though, Richard, how do you actually define progress? Because progress means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So whether we're talking here about economic, technological or social progress. So how do you define it?
0: Our main conception of progress focuses on the recipients of professional service. We're interested in the service the patients receive, the clients receive, the students receive. It's very interesting as we've been speaking around the world in our book, often to professionals, the immediate reaction is to look at the impact on them and to talk about the book being doom and gloom because they will have to change or indeed some of their roles will no longer be relevant. Our focus is entirely different. We see a world where there's insufficiency of medical expertise and help to serve everyone. We see a world where access to justice is unaffordable to most. We see a world where education is a scarce resource. So our conception of progress is using the kinds of technologies that we've discovered or are already in play and seeing the extent of which they can greatly increase what we call access to practical expertise. That's our, our term in the book that summarizes the knowledge, the experience, the skills and so forth that experts have and the recipients of their services don't.
2: Richard, would you describe the future of the professions as a biography of change, human change, and how we adapt and grow as societies, or not? Do you think that's a fair description?
0: I'm not sure I would say that, because I think the discontinuity that we're noticing is as a result of technology. Now, one might want to say that technology is of itself a manifestation of or a creation of human beings, but we believe we're at a bit of a crossroads, uh, and we suggest that, to some extent we're seeing technology in the professions streamlining and optimizing the old ways of working but more radically and more significantly we're seeing technology fundamentally replace much of the work of human beings now this I want to stress and Daniel will say the same this is not over the next few years we're talking about decades um, but our book is looking at the long term and during that period it seems to us that technology will play a fundamental role in changing the way that human beings gain access to human expertise. Interestingly, I mean, some people say, is this a revolution or is it evolution? And we say it's something rather in the middle. We call it an incremental transformation. It's certainly driven by human beings, but I think it's catalyzed by the technology. Daniel,
2: I'm wondering, as I was going through the book, it struck me that maybe that humans are in some way wired to actually look at change rather negatively Mm. and maybe in some way get in the way of progress and Mm. get in the way of change.
1: I think you see this across the change uh, that we're exploring as well. Uh, I think it depends on whose standpoint you take. And And it comes back to what my dad was talking about before. The people who are most resistant to the sorts of changes that we describe in the book are the traditional providers. Traditional doctors and traditional lawyers and traditional accountants, and so on. Some of the people who are most excited about these changes and most eager to embrace the change are the recipients. You know, people for whom most traditional professional services are simply unaffordable and inaccessible. So it's uh, You know, I, I think not everyone has that conservatism that might characterize some people in the traditional professions. I think it's also important to say that if you look at the people in the systems who seem to be replacing parts of the professions, taking on the work that was done by traditional professionals, uh, they're certainly not conservative at all, and they, and they really do embrace this change. If
0: I could add to that, it's very interesting, and listeners might want to bear this in mind, that what we've found, and it's a widespread phenomenon, is that professionals can see the room and the scope for change in most other professions other than their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see this all the time that uh, doctors can see, yes, uh, lawyers and tax people really need to pull up their socks. And others say, of course, doctors need to change. One of the reasons that we wrote the book was precisely to open the minds of all professionals. And so there'll be inclination of listeners, uh, doctors, architects and so forth saying, yes, I can see we're, uh, we're really moving into a time of change in other areas, but not our own. And we want to urge actually that the changes that we've noticed and are noting and expecting really apply equally across the professions.
2: Pitching up a question on whether the professions are fit for purpose or not, I would imagine would can get you into a lot of hot water or certainly rub up a lot of the professions the wrong way because there is the argument to say that the professions are at the heart of social and economic life all over the world and that it's a tradition that is very entrenched in how we live and understand the world. I
1: think the most important thing to do is to, to ask why is it that we have the professions at all? And it's something we do very early on in the book. We say, you know, why do we have the professions? And the answer that we reach is that the professions, these different professions, in in analogous ways, are a solution to the same problem. Uh, Fundamentally, they're a solution to the same problem, which is that most people don't have enough specialist knowledge to cope with all the daily challenges in life. No one can know everything. Human beings have what the uh, legal philosopher Herbert Hart called limited understanding of the world around them. And so we turn to experts, to doctors, to teachers, to lawyers, to accountants, and so on, because they have the expertise, the specialist knowledge that we need to make progress in life. They have, as my my dad said, this this practical expertise, this collection of skills and knowledge and insight and experience and understanding. But the traditional professions are creaking. For most people and most organizations, the expertise of the finest professionals, or indeed any professionals, is, is unaffordable most professions are opaque. The work that they do in some cases is genuinely too complex for lay people to understand. But other times, you know, there's, there's intentional obfuscation. The professions are antiquated. If you look at the ways in which they produce and share information and knowledge, it's very old-fashioned despite the existence of feasible alternatives. They're unaffordable for most people. So, so you know, we, we ask this question, bearing in mind that the know, the purpose of the professions is to resolve these problems that most people in society simply don't have the specialist knowledge to do. We ask the question, given the traditional professions of creaking, as we move from a print based society into an Internet society, might there be entirely new ways to solve these problems, new ways to organize professional work, new ways to make this practical expertise available? Uh, and our answer that we find in the book is is absolutely
0: yes. Now, you, you raise a very interesting question, uh, which one might frame in this way. I think you were suggesting, and there's some social theorists centuries ago said the same, that in some senses the professions go beyond offering advice and service they're somehow the source of social cohesion. They're somehow, in some sense, the measure against which we we, we look at our own behaviour from an ethical point of view. So they set standards of behaviour, they keep us all together, they're a model of aspiration. And so people worry, as I think is implicit in your question, that if we find different ways of making practical expertise available, then there will therefore be no reason the traditional justification for having the professions in terms of cohesion and of ethics is very much under threat. Now, we're not sure we can see sufficient evidence that we keep together as a society or our moral behaviour is conditioned by the professions. Indeed, fascinating, we think, is in the internet age when you think of an online community and you think of social networking, there's a whole bundle of different factors informing how it is we hang together as a society today. In fact, at our most cynical, perhaps, we perhaps think it's a rationalisation that professions will say we are indispensable not because of the services we provide but because of the consequences of our being. And we think we've got to open up our minds to thinking of new ways Delivering the service and thinking of new ways to uphold moral standards and new ways of of ensuring societal cohesion
2: well richard let 's look at online dispute resolution solutions. They can be pretty sophisticated affordable accessible but i 'm just wondering in all of that how important are nuances and the, the subtle more subtler stuff in a dispute and what technology can do and how it can advance things?
0: I think most people who are looking at online dispute resolution and certainly the work I'm doing in England and Wales... I chair a group of the Civil Justice Council that looks at online dispute resolution. We are not thinking at this stage that this technology or these systems with human beings, different human beings, will in some sense replace the entire judicial system. We focused on low-value claims, uh, civil claims, as I say, and non-criminal actions. And the problem in England and Wales, and it's true in Ireland, frankly, it's true across the world, is that Currently, to pursue a claim, maybe just a simple dispute between you and me for a few hundred pounds or euros, to pursue such a claim takes far too long, it costs far too much, the process is unintelligible, and it's excessively combative as well. So what we've looked at is ways of organising the resolution of dispute that somehow gives us speedier, less combative, cheaper, and more convenient way of people getting on with their own lives. And we ask the question, therefore, is court a service or a place? Do we really need to congregate together as human beings, maybe a year after a problem arose, and pay intermediaries, lawyers, many, many more pounds than the amount at issue to resolve our problems? Or might we find different ways? Now, There are those who go far, far further and say that some of the judicial thinking itself can be replaced by technology. There are those who say that you don't need human beings to assist in the process of mediation, for example. We're at this stage not saying that. We're saying that quite a lot of cases could actually be decided by judges online uh, looking at the cases on the basis of the papers alone. But even before they get to judges, why don't we have case officers who can evaluate the cases and see whether or not they really do deserve judicial attention. But the point is this, that from the point of view of the people who have problems, rather, as I say, than physically gathering together in one place, you can sit using your machine on a simple, intuitive, internet-based system and have some kind of interaction either directly with the other party or with some kind of judge or case officer, and hopefully resolve or dissolve your claim rapidly. This is a far cry from what people want to say, which is the suggestion you've got robotic judges. or uh, we're, we're nowhere near that. This isn't the proposition. The proposition is that we can fundamentally change one of the underlying principles, and that is you gather together physically. Uh, and some people might say, well, that doesn't really seem to us to be particularly radical, from the point of view, again, of the recipients of service. If you can sort out your disputes in a few days at almost no cost, this greatly increases the quality of life that people can have. More than that, we talk in our book about the latent market. That refers to people today who, who would like to benefit from some kind of service or expertise but can't afford it. We believe with online courts, people who have entitlements and yet in the past have been unable to enforce these will have far easier access. So although, I mean, go back to William Gibson and saying the future has arrived, it's not evenly distributed yet, we're not seeing any robotic judges anywhere and uh, and not anytime soon. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at an antiquated process and think, certainly the lower end, lower value disputes, can we not do a much better job of doing this? And this is the kind of principle we're seeing right across the professions. And it's a theory, of course, that many people put forward about technologies that that disrupt generally, that they don't start at the high end replacing the best, the most expert. Uh, What they do at the beginning is uh, they work in fairly low-value areas, succeed there, and then drift up. So our anticipation is that in the first instance it'll be low-value claims, but then litigators and judges will think, I wonder why we can't use these techniques in larger cases. So it's an evolutionary process in this context. We start simple, uh, we put the technology in place we build confidence and alternative ways of working and our view is that uh, the market will speak for themselves that people will find it more convenient and more affordable to resolve their disputes in that way.
2: Do you think down the road accountants will be made redundant because if we look at the volume of online tax preparation software out there and a lot of the stuff that you can access on the internet you know the accountants are somewhat compromised your traditional accountant in all of this aren't they
1: it's it's a, it's an interesting question the i think in thinking about the future of work one of the things we do that isn't particularly helpful and we do it across all the professions whether it's in accounting or law or medicine and so on is that we talk about the different jobs that people do so we talk about accountants and we talk about doctors and we talk about teachers and so on but the term job isn't entirely illuminating, because in the case of accountants, for example, it encourages us to think that the job that an accountant does is is somehow a sort of monolithic, indivisible lump of work. Uh, When in actual fact, when you break down the different jobs that accountants do, the job of being an accountant is made up of lots and lots of different tasks, lots of different activities. And so in thinking about the future of work, the first thing to do is to move away from talking about jobs instead to talk about tasks. So in the case of accountants, if we look at the sort of tasks that accountants do, it's absolutely true that some some of the tasks that accountants do can already be done very differently and in cases more efficiently by what we call increasingly capable systems. Some tasks it's foreseeable in the future that they may also be, and some tasks perhaps we we, we can't conceive. So what what you get is, at least in the medium term, what we'll see is a change in the sorts of tasks that make up in this case, the job of being an accountant, but also the job of being any type of professional.
2: But Daniel, I'm just wondering with all of that, though, Mm. when we look at the future of tomorrow's professions, (sighs) what are we training professional people to do and how meaningful will their jobs be? Because if there is a lot of kind of divided or separated tasks, as you've argued, and it's all very systematised in Mm. ways, that can be from an employee's perspective very boring, very frustrating, not very inspiring mm. and possibly very undermining. So I'm wondering within all this progress, how what will the quality of the workplace be like? Do we need to balance the progress and technological progress with issues about employee satisfaction, creating meaningful workplaces, creating workplaces which are based on communication and teamship and not just the bottom line, the deliverable and productivity and and, and streamlining that productivity through technology? Because then it seems it will be a very ghastly world indeed.
1: So there's two really important questions there. The first is, are the tasks that are going to be left for human beings interesting and fulfilling ones? Uh, and the second is, how do we train people to do those things? Um, the kind of training question. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe leave the training question uh, to my dad. But if I just, I mean, if we look at if we look at the sort of tasks that we anticipate, and in, in the book we set out, 12 new roles for the professions, and many of them are very unfamiliar, and and many of them probably won't be performed by traditional professionals at all. If we look at those roles, I think it's a mistake to think that those are, in some sense, less fulfilling or less interesting than existing ones. I mean, it's very interesting. The the word robot comes from a Czech word, robota, which means sort of drudgery or servitude or toil. And it's certainly the case at the moment that what these systems are capable of doing is often the least interesting component of professional work. Uh, it frees professionals up from doing lots of lots of unfulfilling routine work. It's also the case that for people who have performed many of the new roles, and it's, and it's perhaps something my dad could talk to in a moment, because he he was not one of the roles we look at in the book is the role of the knowledge engineer. And it was a role that he himself performed in the 1980s when he was trying to build a a system, uh, uh, it was called an expert system, that could answer questions about a particular area of the law to this day. And he he says it's it's one of the most intellectually fulfilling and stimulating parts of the legal work that he's ever done. So I I think we need to move away from the idea that the new tasks and the new roles that will be created in the future, because they're sort of associated with technology in some sense, they are contaminated by it, when in fact a lot of the things, I mean, they're different, certainly, but they can be equally fulfilling. Yes,
0: you raise an interesting question about what we call the pipeline of experts. To rephrase what you're saying, one of the concerns that many people have is that if the more routine work that is often done by young professionals is now done by systems, how is it that young aspiring professionals can learn their trade in the future? Where's the work they can cut their teeth on? And I've been trying to answer that question since the mid-90s, actually. It's an important question. I think the first thing to say is it's not a knock-down question, by which I mean we need to sort it out. It doesn't, for us, seem to to be a fatal objection to the use of better systems. In short, really, it's a training challenge. Interestingly, over the years, I've often asked young professionals, perhaps working in audit or in uh, document review and litigation, I've been asking them, what would it be like for your career if for the first couple of years you didn't spend all your time doing this work, if you lost this opportunity? And almost uniformly they say, look, we get how to do this in a couple of days. We don't need to spend a couple of years on it. And we have to remember that the way we often train our young professionals, the experience we provide them, is often as much in the interests of the business models of the professional firms than it is uh, in the interests of those who are being trained, I often rather cynically say, let's not confuse training with exploitation. The truth is this, that if we can find far better ways of delivering service, and this means that uh, we threaten the way we currently train our young professionals, we need to think of new ways of training.
2: Now, Richard, one of the questions that you ask or that you pose in, in the book, which I find particularly interesting, you ask, do you think the professions in some way have underperformed? That's a very tricky one because it depends what way we're looking at them and how we're evaluating them. What's your take?
0: We have to be careful here. What we are not seeing uh, anywhere in the book is that are many wonderful professions, teachers, doctors, lawyers, fantastically committed individuals have in some sense been negligent or vastly uh, under met expectations. We're looking there more from an economic point of view, I suppose. We're talking about the affordability. So when we say the professions underperform, what we're meaning by that is that the very best expertise of the top professionals is because it's delivered by one human being to another, by definition only available to a very few individual recipients of the service. So taken as a whole, the professions in that sense underperform. The expertise of the finest specialist is a scarce resource and historically we haven't found a decent way of distributing that resource other than on a one-to-one by and large consultative basis. And when you look at the 7 billion people out there who would benefit from better understanding of their health position, their legal position and so forth, what we were turning our minds to is whether or not technology can somehow leverage this knowledge and expertise, somehow magnify the performance of the professions. And so we have innumerable wonderful professionals, as I say, delivering great service on a daily basis. But the challenge surely is to get the very finest expertise as widely distributed as possible. So to say that we underperform is to say we don't yet achieve that. And to say that we underperform, I think, is to set the challenge of using information technology, the internet, better ways of producing and distributing expertise somehow to increase the reach of first-rate service across society.
2: Well, Richard, WikiHouse would be a very good example of that. Can you talk me through that um, online service?
0: Uh, well, WikiHouse
1: Wiki is fascinating in that it's a uh, so in an architecture and it was a building that was designed by uh, a group of people online and then it was printed and assembled by a small group of people in London a, a few years ago now that is that is a very very different way of designing and assembling a building compared to the traditional way in which we might have done it with an architect at the helm and you know, traditional construction industry following their lead uh, it's just it 's a very, very different model of both producing the expertise group of people online coming together in an online community and then distributing it printing a house, and in such a way that it can be assembled by non-experts. And all of this was done for less than, I think, £50,000. So it's, it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about how to build a house. In this case, how to produce and share the practical expertise that might have once just been locked up in the head of a traditional architect and only available to those who could afford
0: their service. 106 to 108.
2: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with Richard and Daniel Suskind on the publication of their new book, The Future of the Professions How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Experts, published by Oxford University Press. Now, in the book, Richard and Daniel write, The professions are an artefact that we have built to meet a particular set of needs in a print-based industrial society. As we progress into a technology-based internet society, the professions in their current form will no longer be the best answer to those needs. They are often antiquated. The expertise of the best is enjoyed only by a few, and their workings are not transparent. I put it to Daniel, what problems are the professions our solution? And what are the feasible online alternatives?
1: In the medical world, patients like me, uh, it's an online community of 350,000 patients, people who have um, either been the recipients of professional help from a doctor or have resolved illness themselves or are living with an illness. There are no traditional doctors on the site. It's a community of 350,000 people who talk with each other and share their own experiences and their own insights. and give their own advice based on their own experience about how to resolve medical problems. You know, that's, that's doing a very, very similar thing to what a traditional doctor might have done, but it's doing it in a very, very different way. The expertise, the practical expertise is coming from a very different place. In this case, it's the the experience of the patients, and it's being distributed in a very, very different way, not sitting down with a doctor in a doctor's surgery, but in an online community. We call these that, that particular way of producing and Distributing practical expertise, we call it the communities of experience model, and you see it across the professions. You see it in education as well. On Khan Academy, it's an online collection of uh, instructional videos and practice problems, and I, I, I use it to teach my students economics at, at Oxford. It has 10 million unique users a month. Now that's that, in a way, is a higher effective attendance than the entire school population of England. Uh, but what's so brilliant about Khan Academy is you know, partly the quality of the online videos and practice problems, but also these incredible communities that have built up underneath each of these problems of people grappling with the problems and sharing how they resolved it with each other.
2: One of the communities you do bring up and you do develop is looking at the nature of religious communities. And you talk about online pujas. Do you think that 20 years time that religious communities and religious services or religious rituals will have migrated online because that brings in the moral realm it brings in a lot of different complex issues and although people are obviously using online websites to learn about religion or to practice in some way it brings up so many different variables
1: it's a a really interesting question it won't be the case that in the future all religious practices migrated online. It's, it's not, it's not, it won't be as, as binary as that, but it will be a far more complex kind of landscape where people practice their religious beliefs, and you already see it. For example, in in Second Life, which is a a virtual online world where more than a million people control their own avatars, their own virtual characters, there there is a a virtual island called Epiphany. And on this virtual island, a a thriving group of Christians have built and run an Anglican cathedral. Now, this this Anglican cathedral runs daily worship services. It's got a weekly Bible study class, and, and for those who need it, it offers counseling services as well. That's fully online. But then you see cases where there's a sort of a foot in the online world and a foot in uh, the real world. So an interesting example of this is the Mormon Church. It employs more than 85,000 missionaries around the world. The work of being a missionary is an important rite of passage in in the Mormon Church. Uh, But on mormon.org, there's a large number of Mormons who are available at all times to answer any questions a visitor might have. And this online activism has, and these online discussions about religion and faith, an advice to the church said that it increases the number of converts that a missionary might get by sevenfold. So, you know, there's that, that another example of, kind of religious practice being sort of nurtured and encouraged online, but with a, a, a foot in, in the sort of analog world as well.
0: Your question does raise another quite challenging problem that we try to address in the book, and that is what we might call the moral limits of machines. It occurs to us that although machines are becoming, as we say, increasingly capable— There might be limits to what it is we would want machines to undertake from a moral point of view. Somehow I think most of us would think that the idea of a machine being responsible for and taking the decision for turning off a life support system, that doesn't quite feel right. Or we can't imagine, most of us, the idea that some kind of machine will perhaps hand down a life sentence. We have the sense that the moral responsibility for some of our more important decisions in society should be held within the hands of human beings, that somehow the moral buck shouldn't stop, as it were, at a robot. And we don't have a definitive answer for this in the book, but we do call for public debate on the question, because it seems to us that this is going to be one of the great questions of this century, where it is that we draw the line Uh, when it comes to machine conduct and machine behaviour. And we draw an analogy, you'll recall, in the early 80s, uh, with uh, the whole advent of in vitro fertilisation and test tube babies and so forth, and this clearly raised some pressing moral concerns. And a government-led inquiry, Mary Warnock was the chair of the inquiry, raised public discussion, debate on the issue, and drew up some very practical, useful guidelines, the basis of which is still in place today. And we think it's We require that same kind of public discussion today on the question of the moral limitations that we should impose on our machines. And without sounding melodramatic, we should be imposing them before they get much more capable.
2: But it all comes back to, Richard, on what types of society do we actually want? What are we designing for our future? And within all of that, who is responsible? So who is responsible, Richard, if the system gets it wrong? And where is the comeback?
0: You raise different questions there uh, the, the second question that you raise is one of liability, and people often say this to us so uh, if loss damage or injury as lawyers would say flow from the use of some kind of system, uh, who do we hold liable uh, and will that not deter people from actually investing in these systems because they'll be worried about liability. We often point to the converse, that as these systems become increasingly capable and clearly outperform human beings, then people can be held to be negligent for failing to use these systems. So if doctors and lawyers don't use diagnostic systems or drafting aids that are available to them, and they are performance gives rise to to problems then not using the technology will of itself give rise to liability. This is a complex area of law and many different jurisdictions are feeling their ways in, in a different fashion but our overall sense is that it would be a dreadful shame if systems that could unquestionably increase the overall sum of human happiness and the health and wealth of our nation were somehow inhibited by the law we need the law we believe to facilitate the development of systems that give rise to a more prosperous and a healthier society rather than inhibit you ask the i think the deeper question though but what kind of society do we want to live in And it's quite interesting because as we've reflected on these increasingly capable machines, it does lead you to ask some fundamental questions about what human beings are on Earth for and what's a good and fulfilling life and whether or not work is fundamental to that. Or might we find other ways to express ourselves and to be satisfied? And if it was possible for us to work much less, would this be a good thing? Again, we're not dogmatic and wanting to offer single solutions, but we do want to encourage debate that we can imagine a world in which human beings live a very different life, a world in which machines and systems can take on much of the drudgery and much else beside and somehow release us to be more fulfilled. It might be a world where people are expressing themselves more through music, through art, through ballet, through theater, through writing and so forth. We just want this possibility to be discussed. But above all, we think we should want to live in a world where expertise that used to be really held by gatekeepers, the traditional professions, if that can be made available to others to improve their ways of life, then we think uh, there's a moral responsibility to make it available. And there's also a sin of omission if we decide not to make available these technologies. It seems to us we're as morally culpable. So we have, as we enter the next couple of decades, the possibility of radically overhauling, for example, the way our health service is run, the way our justice system is run, the way our educational system is run. We don't want that to be hindered by, for example, uh, laws of liability that applied in a print-based world. We need to rethink from a policy and a legal point of view how it is that we can safely, with the recipient's interests in mind, introduce these innovations into society.
2: And what about the personal touch, human interaction and developing meaningful communication so that recipients of services feel less alienated? What do you say to all
1: of that? Personal interaction is fascinating. Um, it, it's something that professionals often appeal to in, in saying that the work that they do is, is out of reach of these increasingly capable systems and machines. I think the mistake, though, and, and, and none of what I'm about to say is to, in any sense, degrade the value of personal interaction and empathy and, and so on. They're incredibly important things that we want to nurture and protect. But what you see in the professions is a lot of these systems and machines performing sorts of tasks that might have required empathy or personal interaction from a human being, uh, but doing it in fundamentally different ways. So if if you look at the the example of eBay I gave before, 60 million disputes arising online and resolved online uh, without traditional lawyers using an e-mediation platform, there's no need there for a personal interaction with a traditional lawyer. On Khan Academy, that online collection of instructional videos and practice problems, 10 million people are using it a month, and they're not interacting in a, in a traditional way uh, with the teacher. So the, the first thing to say is we need to remember that many of these systems and machines can perform tasks that might have required, for example, personal interaction from a human being, uh, but, but they're, they're doing it in a very different way. There's a second thing to say, which is that I think it's also a mistake to think that and this, and this is perhaps the more challenging one and the one that might press more on us, not, not in the next few decades, but beyond that, is that many of these systems and machines can actually perform tasks empathetically as well, or, or at least can appear to mimic it in some way. Just, just to give you an example, there are now systems and machines that can more accurately than a human being distinguish between a face that's expressing a smile of genuine joy and fake joy, fake pain and real pain there's a wonderful story actually of the of Joseph Weizenbaum who was one of the fathers of artificial intelligence who has a bit of fun and developed a system called Eliza which was a digital psychotherapist he wanted to test it so he called a secretary and said look would you mind sitting down with uh with Eliza and tell me how it is and so she sat down with Eliza and Eliza started asking questions. And quite quickly after, the secretary asked Joseph Weizenbaum, the only other human being in the room, to leave the room, because in actual fact, she felt more comfortable with a machine than with a human being in, in resolving or in, in talking about the particular problem that she had. I mean, this this really troubled Joseph Weiss It's
2: remarkable when you think about it, Daniel, but it leads into the idea that maybe we've all underestimated in some way the potential of technology and future technologies when we look at effective computing or whatever it is, whether it's online health services providers or whatever it is, that we have some way got this inertia that we don't actually use our imaginations or our given creativity to think big and to think large, that technology can give us the solution.
1: And I'd and I say there's two ways in which we've done that. The first way is failing to recognise that many of these systems and machines can perform tasks that might have required things that we think are incredibly human, things like creativity and judgement and empathy. But as those examples of eBay and uh, Khan Academy show, they can still perform these tasks, but they just do them in very, very different ways to a human being. You know, They're, they're competing on kind of a different game. So that's the first mistake, to fail to see that these systems and machines can do things very differently. The second underestimation that we make is that actually many of these systems and machines can do things in the same way as human beings, or at least can impersonate or replicate what, what human beings do in ways that we find surprising as well. So I, th- I think you're right.
0: There can also here, if I can put it, diplomatically be a failure of imagination. We call it technological myopia. But very often when we're discussing technologies, people cannot help but discuss the current version of that system. So if we were saying, for example, that doctors when meeting with patients might use Skype, You will often receive uh, feedback from someone saying they were speaking to their grandchild across the globe on Skype and it cut out a couple of times as if that's a knockdown argument. I mean, it seems to us self-evident and anyone who's following the technologies that knows that the technology that Skype today is the worst that it will ever be from now on. It's just getting better and better. You'll soon have telepresence, high-definition desktop-to-desktop telepresence, then a new course will be holographic, the sound quality will be wonderful. And so... What we always urge people to remember is there's no finishing line in technology. People shouldn't be evaluating the potential of future applications in terms of the current limitations of enabling technologies. The technologies are moving on at a remarkable rate. We can almost divide our readership and those to whom we speak into those who can anticipate that the world is going to be very different and technology is advancing, and those who seem to want to evaluate the possibilities in terms of today's technology.
2: So Richard, does it come down to fear maybe that some people look at technology and see that it's all standardised and inflexible and that it lacks creativity? Do you think it's actually fear of the future, is it?
0: I think fear is a component. I think looking behind the fear is probably uh, people's lack of comfort with uh With uncertainty. People don't know where the technology is going, they're not sure where their jobs are going, Uh, they can't see necessarily if it's a good or a bad thing for the recipients of services. Uh, People haven't themselves immersed themselves in the possibilities of what might come to pass. And so the immediate reaction is often one of skepticism, is often one of doubt, is often one of cynicism. And we try to encourage our readers and we want to encourage your listeners as well to recognize that. Actually, it's a privilege to be living in a time probably of greater technological progress, more rapid progress than humanity has ever seen. We're radically changing the way we communicate, the way we collaborate, the way we socialise, the way we work. And you can look at this in two ways: you can resist, you can argue that it's uh, that it's all very worrying, or you can say, "I want to embrace this." And this is what I say to young students coming through: they're privileged to be joining a, a generation of professionals who won't just carry on working as they're. 20th century ancestors did, but actually have a role to play in shaping, in changing the future. I understand the fear. It's a fear of the unknown. It's a fear of the uncertainty. But as ever, when that kind of fear prevails, the best answer is to educate, to equip, to learn, to somehow get a sense of what this means for you and have a more balanced uh, appraisal of what the future is likely to look like. We sometimes say that we don't really predict the future, and we don't. We, we lay out a buffet. We say, here's a whole bundle of things that might happen, and that's what we invite our readers to do, to delve in and, uh, and select from the buffet the items they find most desirable. We're certainly not, as the jargon calls it, we're not determinists. We're not saying there's only one future out there. But what we do say is that the least likely future is that nothing will change from today. That seems to us entirely improbable, that somehow technology is going to stop and that somehow we've plateaued, and we can't really expect Expect any major change. All the signs are that the pace of change is accelerating. So we encourage people to engage, enjoy, embrace, and get some fun out of what is a, a as we say, a time that is an honour to be alive. I
1: think for someone of my generation,
0: uh, it, it's
1: worth as well
0: just emphasising
1: that that sense of excitement. You know, I, th- I think if if people of my generation go into the professions with the expectation that what they'll be doing is working like their parents or their grandparents did, the result will be disappointment. But I think if if, if my generation of people go into you know, education and law and healthcare and and all these different professions, not in the mindset of working the way that was done in the twentieth and nineteenth century, but instead you know asking how can I solve legal problems? How can I solve medical problems? How can I solve educational problems in the most effective and accessible way using technology, it's it's an incredibly, as my dad was saying The the, the answers that you get are incredibly exciting and optimistic, and and that is, for me, the spirit in which I look at the change that's happening. we, We have a chance to make access to practical expertise far more widely available now in society, and we should also have the will.
2: That was Richard and Daniel Susskind. The Future of the Professions How Technology Will Transform the Work of Human Expertise is published by Oxford University Press and retails for just under €25 euros in hardback. Well that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books I'd like to end tonight's programme with some stirring words from Richard and Daniel Susskind, who write in their conclusions to the future of the professions. Our sense is that from behind a veil of ignorance, most people would choose to liberate rather than enclose. We feel a great sense of excitement in imagining human beings across the world, rich and poor, having direct access to living, evolving treasure troves of help, guidance, learning and insight that will empower them to live healthier and happier lives. But this shift will not come about spontaneously. It is a goal in which we must actively strive. We must remember that inaction, as well as action, is a choice. If we choose to do nothing and we decide to default on our traditional ways and discard the promise of technological change for fear, say, of rocking the boat, then this is a decision for which later generations can hold us accountable. In the words again of Anthony Kenny, technology puts sins of omission as immediately and inevitably within our power as it puts sins of commission. The potential sins of omission here are too profound to ignore. We now have the means to share expertise more widely across our world. We should also have the will. Good night.
0: 106 to 108.